Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, Political Outreach Director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's show, Lauren Hurl chats with Representative Dara Torre for our deep dive conversation about the Affordable Heat Act and the Housing Equity Bill. Later on, I speak with the three members of the MENA caucus, those of Middle Eastern and North African descent, on their journeys to Vermont, campaigning, and their experiences with cultural assimilation, as well as being visible leaders for other Iranians and Egyptians living in Vermont. But first, I am joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters for the Session Shakedown segment. This is where we recap the week prior and take a look at the coming week of the session. Last week, there were two major rallies at the State House. Let's Grow Kids held a rally for crucial child care policies on Wednesday, while the youth lobby had their rally for the planet on Friday. Lauren, you were down there for the action. What was it like? Yeah, it was great. There was a beautiful, sunshiny day, and hundreds of Vermont high school and middle school students had come from a bunch of areas from around the state, and there was great energy. They had music and art. Um, They were holding conversations with each other to, I think, educate and engage and share ideas. And so a lot of creativity and just great to see the leadership of these young Vermonters pulling together this great event uh, and making their voices heard and calling for bold climate action as the generation that's going to be living with the impacts for longer. So having that urgency of action was really impactful. A lot of legislators came out and connected with students from their districts. So yeah, all in all, a great event. Amazing. And then inside the building last week, testimony continued on many of our priority policies. Uh, What's the latest on the bottle bill and 30 by 30? The Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee has been diligently working through testimony on uh, and really kind of digging into the issues on both the 30 by 30 and bottle bill uh, modernization acts. So they were hoping to see votes on both of those as they do the final markup and whatever refinements that they want to do to those bills um, in that committee in the next week or two. So it looks, you know, so far on track for moving both of those priority bills forward. Um, another issue that has, you know, we've been talking about, but has kind of popped up that did not be crossover, um, but they are trying to get some momentum on is uh, the renewable energy standard modernization. Uh, so this was a an environmental common agenda priority, and it looks like they're going to hopefully be able to at least um, put some language forward that would um, set up some um, analysis over the summer that can answer some key questions about um, what that renewable energy standard modernization should look like. Um, and so we're, we're hopeful that that actually moves forward to set kind of some high level goals for how we want a better renewable energy standard. So I'll keep everybody updated on how that is playing out as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
Taking a look at this week on Tuesday, uh, I'll be giving testimony on the ranked choice voting bill to the House Committee on Government Operations and Military Affairs. For more on that bill, take a listen to our episode a few weeks ago with Secretary of State Sarah Copeland-Hansis. And on Wednesday, we will be taking part in a press conference around S-25, a bill that will ban PFAS from a number of items, including cosmetics and personal care products. What is the scoop on that? Yeah, so after a unanimous vote in the Senate in support of the bill to ban PFAS and other harmful chemicals uh, from this slate of products, um, the bill has moved to the House Human Services Committee. They do have some really big, meaty policies on their plate, including child care and overdose prevention. So they're taking those up. They're working really hard on those issues. And so we're, we're advocating uh, that if time allows, and we're really hopeful that you know this was a really straightforward uh, bill in the Senate that the House could take it up and move it this year. So we'll continue pushing for that. Um, and, you know, if, if nothing else, trying to get the conversation started uh, this year so that we can make progress as quickly as possible, knowing that, you know, the longer we wait, the more of these harmful chemicals we're bringing into our homes, our state, and our environment. Yeah, and a friend of the podcast, uh, our Attorney General Charity Clark will be there, as well as our partners over at VPIRG. Uh, The Affordable Heat Act passed out of the House Committee on Environment and Energy on Thursday by a vote of eight to three. You had a chance to chat with Representative Dara Torre of Moortown, who sits on that committee and following the vote and their many weeks of work on the bill. She also shares info on the housing equity bill that their committee has begun work on. Let's take a listen to that now. Well, I am delighted to be here today with Representative Dara Torrey, and she is a new representative from uh, the Mad River Valley region, and it has been really wonderful to have her perspective and expertise as a new member of the uh, House Environment and Energy Committee, and wanted to get an update from you on uh, some of the work that you've been doing So the big news from this week was the passage out of your committee of the Affordable Heat Act, S-5. And I was hoping you could just share a little bit about um, your committee's work on it and ways that you think you all were able to improve the bill. Certainly. Thank you for taking this time with me. Um, You know, I think we spent about three weeks with the bill when it came over from the Senate. And, uh, you know, we were all kind of starting in different places. We had uh, leadership from Representative Sebelia um, and, and um, another representative who worked on it last year. And that was invaluable um, because it, it, it's complicated and it's big. Uh, so we worked our way through and I feel like we made some good refinements. Uh, some of the things that happened kind of at the end as they were rushing it out, um, we got to spend a little more time on. Um, so, you know, we really listened to a lot of different witnesses, took testimony, um, and heard from, you know, the actors who are going to have to implement it and get some great feedback from them on things we could do to improve it. Um, so we heard from like the Public Utilities Commission, the Department of Public Service, um, Efficiency Vermont, and, um, the Office of Racial Equity, and we were able to take, um, some of those suggestions and and put them in uh, our version 
Um, and, and I think that it will be stronger in, 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 in being implemented um, more effectively. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. You all really worked hard. You had a lot of witnesses, a lot of perspectives. Yeah. Including and, the fuel dealers. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we did, um, we did listen to everyone. You know, we, we came at this with a lot of open minds. Um, and so some of the provisions that we did um, as a result of, of hearing from fuel dealers um, was to change the penalty and reduce it a little bit um, more in line with more typical. Um, and this is the penalty that, you know, a non-compliant fuel dealer would, would face. Um, and we added some extra um, language so that it would be, you know, that, that if you had an extenuating circumstance that made it hard for you to meet your credits, um, that, that it could be considered. So, and I, I took a lot of comfort from hearing from the PUC and, and how they approach things and the amount of discretion that they have to make good decisions. And, and um, that was a good part of learning for me was how, how could this actually work Yeah, for all Vermonters. Great. So now, so you all passed the bill out of the Environment and Energy Committee, and now we'll head to the Appropriations Committee, and um, there could be a House vote as early as we're sitting here on Friday, end of next week, potentially, well, maybe the week after, so we'll see. So it's yeah. it's moving, and we'll keep everyone posted on, <laughs> on, uh, on what to expect Um but, you know, getting through the major policy committee is a big milestone. So congrats on all that work and really excited to see that and to hear about some of the improvements you all made to the bill. Um, another bill that you all are just starting to work on is the housing bill, another huge, high profile, important issue facing Vermonters. And just would love to hear a little bit about how you're thinking about as that conversation starts, you know, what perspective you're bringing into that, uh, that policy debate. Sure. Yeah, this was exciting um, because that's housing is such a huge issue for all of us. And um, this housing omnibus bill has a lot of pieces. Uh, and so it's actually going to two different committees. Um, housing worked on it. I think they finished up last night. And we kind of got a head start so that we could start wrapping our heads around um, what was in it that relates to the Environment and Energy Committee. And it's really about the land use planning pieces, which are very prominent in the bill. So, yeah, this taking up this land use piece of the housing bill is an opportunity to complement what we've learned in our work on the 30 by 30 bill and the study that that's going to fund on strategic conservation and the areas of Vermont that we really need to protect. And as we did that work earlier in the session, it really became clear that that work is so important to informing where do we want to grow. Um, and so we, we'd spent time talking about smart growth and we added references to smart growth into that bill. And now S100 has landed and it's all about smart growth and what we can do on the local level to promote denser housing in the right places. So we, we've heard from a number of witnesses already and um, have a lot more that are gonna come in. Um, but it was wonderful for me because I have a background in local planning 
and regional planning. So it, this is all feeling a lot more comfortable than some of the things we've, we've done in committee. And I think that we're going to have time to really, you know, put our heads together on this and pick up um, where the Senate left off and refine some things just like we did with the um, S-5. That's great. Well, I'm sure your planning expertise will be really valuable for the committee. And we will definitely be keeping posted on how that bill is evolving in its work in the House and another, you know, big priority. And we've been working to just make sure that as we address our housing crisis, which we do need to do, that we're doing it in smart, thoughtful ways and encouraging development in the places where we want it to go. So um, that is wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, for all your work. You all have been working incredibly hard and we're really grateful for the the really smart and thoughtful approach you're taking to these complicated but critical policies. Thank you. Well, take care. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the sunshine. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. I'm joined now by three legislators who represent the entire MENA caucus for a conversation about their experiences in the State House of Law campaigning. MENA is an acronym referring to the group of countries situated in the Middle East and in North Africa. Representative Ray Garofano of Essex was born in Iran and immigrated to the United States in the mid-1980s. She serves on the House Human Services Committee. Representative Mary Catherine Stone of Burlington was born and raised in Alabama and is the daughter of an Egyptian immigrant father. She serves on the House Education Committee. And Senator Nader Hashim of Wyndham County is the child of an Egyptian father and an Iranian mother. He serves on the Senate Committees on Education and on Judiciary. Welcome, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Ray, you were born in Iran and moved here uh, when you were young, lived in California, and then moved to the Northeast. Tell us a little bit about your story, your upbringing, and your journey to Vermont. Sure. Thank you so much for this invitation, Justin. So good to be here with you today. Uh, Like you said, I moved here in 1984. During that time, there was a raging war happening between Iran and Iraq. And uh, my father is a Baha'i, which is a minority religion in Iran, which made it very dangerous for us to live in Iran. At the time, me, my mother, and my brother decided it was safer. It was not safe for us to be in Iran anymore. And we immigrated um, initially to Spain then found our way through some friends and distant relatives to Southern California. So I moved here with just two of my family members with very little and settled in Southern California. And um, in the early 80s, because of the war and um, the um, previous hostage crisis that happened in Iran, life was not easy as an Iranian immigrant in a very majority white um, suburb of Los Angeles. So um, middle school already sucks. It sucked even worse for me. And um, because we didn't have a lot of family support here, we kind of just had the three, you know, each other, me, my mom, my brother. And um, we tried back then it was easier to assimilate because of the um, bigotry and the discrimination against Iranians and Middle Easterns in general. So um, that's one of the things that I kind of is highlighted for me how culture has changed. And like uh, if I had a 
immigrated now, um, I think I would have had a lot more sense of empowerment and community being Iranian than I did then. I was ashamed of being Iranian then, which shames me today. And I try to instill that in my family and my child. Um, but it was a way to survive, to become as American as you could as quickly as possible. So that's what me and my brother did. And uh, we are now, I would say in the last 10 years, are kind of finding our way back to our culture, which has been really rewarding and uh, great to kind of discover, um, you know, things that I didn't know, or I had forgotten about my culture. And um, luckily, my mother immigrated, um, moved from Southern California to Vermont. So she's now here with us. So she is a great source of, you know, some of those cultural things that we didn't know. That's amazing. So you, what was the, what was the decision to move to Vermont? Were you elsewhere in New England or were you? I was, so I was in California till, um, 1996. And then I bounced around the Northeast, um, various career opportunities. I was a flight attendant for a while and did many other things, but, uh, I met my husband, my now husband, um, online and he was here. He's Canadian. I joke that our family's multiracial, multinational. So he's, I'm Iranian. He is uh, Canadian, but um, his parents were bo- both born in Italy, and our daughter is black. Um, so we have eight passports between. Wow. The, <laughs> they each have three citizenships, which is amazing, um, and I have two. So uh, my husband is the reason why I came here. He uh, moved from Toronto to Vermont to work for IBM in the 2000s. Amazing. Great. And not our, how about uh, for you? What was your... What's your story and your path to Vermont? Sure. So, uh, so first, thanks for having us. I really appreciate it. Um, so my story. So, I, I was born in Boston. Uh, both of my parents immigrated here uh, in the late '80s. Um, you know, my it's, it's kind of interesting how that ended up happening. You know, they they both came from very different backgrounds. My mother was Iranian. She came to Boston. Um, I believe it was 1989 or 1990. Wait, no, it was earlier than that. I can't remember off the top of my head, but you know, she she came, she showed up with you know just a backpack and and tea is pretty much what she showed up with with and very little money to her name. And um, she ended up meeting my dad, who came here, who came from a lot of privilege um, from Europe. So my dad, so my dad was born in Egypt, ended up going to boarding schools in Europe, and came to the U.S. Uh, to go to Harvard and MIT. And so very different backgrounds. They somehow ended up meeting and kicking it off. Um, and, and then I came around. <laughs> so how did I end up here? My, well, I moved around a lot uh, when I was a kid. You know, we, my dad was in the Army, and so we were up and down the East Coast. Um, and when I was in college, I came to Vermont just for a trip, pretty much. And, you know, as, as I was driving through... Uh, with my friend to go to UVM, I there there was just a part of me that was struck by the beauty of Vermont, and I was like, I don't know how, but I'm gonna find a way to end up in Vermont and working here. And fast forward several years, I was a ended up as a state trooper um, for just under eight years, um, serving in the Brattleboro barracks and then the Westminster barracks, and ended up running for office around 2018. And so you mentioned you moved here. Uh, really to become a state trooper really or were you here before a little bit it was well the visit was just kind of you know the the one time that I visited Vermont I was just kind of like I don't know how but I'm going to find a way to get to Vermont and then in college I was like maybe I'll become a state trooper and that was 
that, that was kind of the pathway. So it was it. a mix of both yeah. to your question. Yeah. And, and you were the first active duty um, police officer to be elected into the legislature. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Has your experience been like being a person of color in a mostly white state um, as a, as a police officer? Hmm, that, that's a good question. You know, it's, it was always interesting because I never got, I was never really, I, I got a lot of weird questions that were kind of, you know, very questions that you just really wouldn't ask a random person that you've never met before. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm optimistic and I just kind of assumed that it was, you know, good natured questions, but, you know, just people asking me where I'm really from, you know, that one, I'm sure lots of us get that question. Um, you know, asking me what other languages I speak and just things that seemed really personal that are, yeah, those those were the types of questions that I got here and there. And you were um, you were re what is it called reassigned to a different barracks when you took office, um, so that you weren't um, working in the district that you served. Is that uh, kind uh, close? So so I I won the election, and then you know I, I would have had to transfer to the Royalton barracks. But in order to meet the residency requirement, I would have had to move out of Wyndham County and thus not, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to continue serving if I'm not living in the county. So it was... That's complicated. Yeah, it was complicated. <laughs> and I said, you know what, I feel like maybe this chapter is closing and it's time to move on. So, okay. So you're no longer an active duty officer. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Haven't, haven't been, I resigned in 2019. Got it. Yeah. So you never had to worry about constituents or, you know, that, that kind of cross-pollination of serving both roles. Correct. Yeah. Awesome. Good. Uh, Mary Catherine, you are the newest to Vermont. Uh, what has your path been and your experience uh, with a white mother and an Egyptian father, especially in Alabama? Yeah, I'm a Southern Belle, um, half Egyptian gal, which is an interesting mix. So I was born and raised in Alabama. My mom is American. She can trace her lineage back to the Mayflower. And my dad immigrated from Egypt in the 1970s. He was a Fulbright scholar and decided to stay here after his education was done. And um, he met my mom at a dance. He's a professional ballroom dancer and, you know, literally swept my mom off her feet. And they're an interesting pair and, yeah, hit it off. And had and had me. So I was born and raised in Alabama, stayed there for the first 24 years of my life. Um, Ray, what, some of the stuff you said resonated with me. I my family definitely stuck out um, in status post 9/11. I was in middle school, and middle school was also very challenging for me. Um, my last name legally is Abdul Ghani. I well, I think we'll talk later about, about our names and some of the stories behind them. But growing up, I went by Abdul Ghani. So if it wasn't already evident that I looked a little different, my last name definitely gave it away. I moved to Washington, D.C. for postgraduate work at GW. And I had watched a Ben and Jerry's documentary when I lived in Alabama. And they showed footage of Vermont in that documentary. And I thought, I need to go on vacation there. But Egyptian dad, Southern mom, like we were not a skiing family. We had no reason to go that far north for vacation. So 
didn't have a reason to go until I moved to DC. And I was like, oh, it's driving distance. So I rented a car. I took a road trip, came to Vermont for maybe 28 hours. I saw a show that Grace Potter put on by the waterfront and I fell in love. And I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to come back here someday. I don't know how, and I don't know when. Um, but after I finished up my graduate work in DC, I thought, why not? Let's take a risk. So I bought a car, packed it with what I could, left what I couldn't behind and drove to Vermont. That was seven years ago. I didn't have a job. I subleased an apartment in the South end of Burlington and I just made it work. And now I couldn't think of living anywhere else. So did you have any Ben and Jerry's when you were at the Grace Potter concert? That's a really important connection. I think I did. I think I did. After I watched that Ben and Jerry's documentary, I went through a spell where I was eating like a pint of Ben and Jerry's each week, like a different flavor. Big fan. Some good marketing. Some great marketing. Yeah. Um, And as you mentioned, yeah, and and I obviously know you as Mary Catherine Albogani Stone. That's how you are on my phone. We were friends before our work brought us here to Montpelier and they did a little work on your campaign and you chose to run and serve just under Stone. Um, Was there a deeper internal decision for you or was that just how you felt in the moment? What felt right? Um, besides the pure logistics of, you know, having a double hyphenated name that's 28 letters long, um, it's a lot to put on the name tag. Um, just curious what your, what the decision was like behind that. Yeah, it's something I definitely struggle with and who knows down the road, I'm, I may change it and include the whole name. Um, I think it comes from also being a, a biracial person and like wanting to honoring, wanting to honor both sides of my family. So Stone is actually my maternal grandmother's maiden name. I was very close with her, and she was one of the first women in the Women's Army Corps. She's a world was a World War II veteran, a very strong, um, empowering woman who inspired me a great deal. Um, and so I took her maiden name to honor her. So that's something that I intentionally added on after her passing to my name. Um, but Abdul Ghani is also a huge part of who I am. I'm very, very, very close with my Egyptian family. I talk with them multiple times a day. Um, and in the Egyptian culture, whatever name you're born with, you you die with. So if you are to get married per se, you don't take the other person's name. You're born into the world as an Abdul Ghani and you die as an Abdul Ghani. So even though I wanted to honor my grandmother, I didn't want to lose who I am. So now I just have a very, very long name, but it didn't really fit on a yard sign or <laughs> on a name badge. But um, I've been doing some thinking on it, and ultimately that is who I am, and it tells a story of who I am. So who knows? In the near future, you may be seeing all those letters on a name tag. Amazing. Yeah, Ray, same sort of question for you. Your your full name is Goring. I'm sure I'm not saying that properly, but, um, and you go by just right. Is that a nickname that you've had since childhood is, you know, you mentioned your, you, you had to assimilate, uh, when you moved to California. Um, is that, was that part of that? Um, or yeah, just curious. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I also, uh, struggle and reflect about this a lot. So my full maiden name when I moved here in 1984 is, uh, Golrang Nuri which um, Goldrang is not a very common name in Iran. My father just liked it and um, named both me and my brother, unbeknownst to my mother. It's a whole other story. But 
um, and when we moved, uh, I remember um, at the airport filling out the immigration paperwork, like right when we were coming over at customs uh, and immigration, we were advised um, to change Nuri to Nori because it's easier to pronounce. So right there, like as soon as you come over, it's like a part of you is taken by the culture that is dominant here. So of course we're like, okay, whatever makes it easier. Right. And, um, and then um, I was 12 when we moved here, middle school, horrible. And I have very um, uh, specific memories uh, of none of my teachers being able to pronounce Kolreng and always assuming that Nori was my first name just because it was shorter. So they would see the roster and do the attendance and then Nori, Nori and you know, then I'd be like, oh, they're talking about me. So no one could say my name. And it just became, again, a source of like, I'm a little bit of like, I'm not enough for people to learn my name and say it. But at the time, I didn't have the confidence or the empowerment to say, no, you have to learn my name. That's disrespectful. And, you know, um, you have to do the hard work to acknowledge me as a human being and my culture. So I heard the name Ray and people talking about it. And I, I've been thinking about, I'm going to change my name. I'm going to change my name to make it easier for everybody else. And I heard it. I liked it. It fit. And uh, I kept it. And uh, in the last several years, especially like my, my child is 12 now and um, you know, they're, of global majority, <laughs> they're black. So like trying to instill in them what their value and their worth and their culture is. Um, you know, I've been trying to honor my birth name more, but it's hard. But you know, when you live with it for so long and everybody now knows me as Ray, it's hard to kind of go back. But I've also kind of thought about, hey, do I change my, you know, my name tag? Do I um, campaign different on under Goldrang? Um, so I intentionally, like on my legislative page, I intentionally use Goldrang because I want people to know that I'm Iranian and I'm proud of the fact and I'm not trying to hide it. So... Yeah, I love that. Um, thanks for sharing. And, and Nara, what about for you um, with your name? Anything that came up for you um, over the years? Um, you know, differences in, with assimilation and, and anything like that? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, it's oftentimes my first name that gets mispronounced. And, you know, it's usually Nader that folks say. And, you know, it's, yeah, I, I mean, it's, you, you start to wonder, all right, how many times do I have to correct a person? You know, like, and then you start self-doubting. You're like, am I starting to, am I, am I seeming annoying by having to correct this person over and over again? Or is it them who's not putting in the effort to just change, you know, one part of it and just say nodder. And so, you know, typically I, I tell folks it's like water, but with an N at the beginning. And that usually works. Um, and, you know, Hashim hasn't really, I've never really had any, conversations with people who've either mispronounced it or have said peculiar things about it so that's yeah yeah it's always that's a really fascinating point and i think that i you know i first had this conversation with keisha ron pinsdale and her name is difficult and then there's a global pop star that had the same spelling but a different pronunciation and it really complicated things but um that's fascinating about the comparison of am i not worthy enough for you to learn my name that's yeah. that's thank you for drawing that comparison um, shifting gears just slightly to the 
the political point of it all. Um, Mayor Captain, this is your um, first time serving in the State House. Um, Ray, you started off as a, an appointment to replace Rep. Mary Beth Redmond in January of 2022, but this is your first year as an elected rep. And not our, uh, this is your first year in the Senate, and you served in 2019 and 2020 uh, in the House before returning this year. Uh, Nader, uh, what are some of the big differences for you now that you've had time in both chambers? That's a great question. It's one of my favorite questions that I get. It's um, So there are pros and cons to both chambers. Um, you know, the there, there are things that I miss about the House, uh, and then there are things that I prefer about the Senate. You know, in the House, it definitely feels like there's a lot more deliberation and in-depth conversations about policy, which obviously you need. Um, and and there's also more communication and organization, you know, because there's simply more people to do that organizing behind the scenes. You know, when you have 150 people, uh, or well, you know, how many how many Democrats are in the House? Hundred and yeah, 104. And you take, you know, five people out of that and you say, all right, you handle communications, you handle summarizing bills and policies. That helps everybody in the House. In the Senate, we don't, well, we have that a little bit, but not nearly as much. Um, and so that's that's one challenge that I've encountered. And it's one thing that I miss about the House. Uh, the other thing about the Senate that I do prefer is the influence that you have on policy. You know, most Senate committees have five members, whereas in the House, there's nine to 11 members. Um, and in the Senate, you know, you, we, we serve on two chambers or uh, two committees. And with five members, whenever you speak up in the conversation, it's much more easy to get your idea put into the bill. Uh, when it happens in the House and you speak up, it's, you gotta, you're going to have to go through a lot more hoops uh, to get that policy put in, at least it's just based off of what I've, what I've seen and experienced there. So I, th I think those are the primary differences. Um, one more thing I'll add is the debates in the Senate, in my opinion, are a bit more intense and personal because it's such a smaller room and it feels like you're at just like a large family gathering and people who, who you're literally sitting very close to, you know, they're in intense debates and it's heated and gets a little awkward sometimes. But in the House, you know, it's a lot more depersonalized because it's such a large chamber. There's 150 people and it's much more easy to walk out of the House chamber not feeling like you were personally attacked or, yeah. Yeah. And also the fact that the, you know, technology is not used, personal technology is not used in the Senate um, during those debates. It's yeah. kind of harder to kind of avoid it and, you know, kind of, you know, not that I'm saying the House members do that, but, you know, it's it's probably easier to get away with tuning out some of the conversations. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, one, one thing I'll say about the technology piece is it's definitely, it requires you to pay really close attention to what's going on and also sh to show up prepared because you can't look up information. But then the, the downside of that is you can't look up information and then contribute that to the conversation. So, right. Yeah, it's a catch-22, I think. Yeah. Um, Ray, what was your experience of, of campaigning, uh, like, after having served uh, at the end of a session, you, you had a pretty much complete year um, after your appointment by the governor. I imagine it was interesting to be fairly new to voters this time around, even though you had a little bit of experience, so you kind of knew what it was like. 
um, as, as an incumbent of sorts, yes. Yeah, I had the best of both worlds, honestly. And I have a fabulous district mate who ran for the first time, uh, is serving her first term. And we partnered and campaigned together. And luckily, I've been doing a lot of community work in my community, especially around the school district for the last 10 years uh, in partnership with the school district. Um, so I was fairly known by, you know, our community. So that was helpful. And then always running as an incumbent is easier and being able to, you know, run on actually a record of things that we did. And I mean, last year we passed some historic legislation with all the ARPA funding uh, and we're continuing to do that this year. So that was great. And I loved campaigning. I loved going door to door and just meeting the neighbors and, you know, community members that I hadn't known. And uh, we just had a lot of fun with it. We did a lot of community events and uh, I hope to do a lot more of that this summer in the off session. Oh, nice. I, some, it's so interesting to know who really likes going to a door and who despises it. It takes a certain person to be able to like boldly knock on a door and interrupt someone's day. So it's good to know that you're one of those people. Uh, Mary Catherine, you had an even different experience because of both redistricting and, and the fact that your seatmate, Rep. Barbara Rachelson, had previously served alone, uh, but your new district became a two-member district, and you both ran unopposed. Um, there were other districts across the state where newcomers ran unopposed, and there was a sense that a few of you were able to kind of walk right into the state house. Do you think that shaped your attitude coming in? Perhaps you had more energy than some of the others who had a really intense, they were going to every door in their district. Um, or what's your perspective? Um, first of all, I share the same sentiment as Ray. I am very fortunate to have an amazing district mate. Barbara Rachelson has served for a number of years. She's very plugged in, in our community. She was very helpful and supportive from the get-go when I told her that I wanted to run. Um, I am one of those people who likes going door to door. I know that I'm privileged in the sense that I didn't have an opponent. Um, so my campaign costs were lower. Uh, my, my stress level was not absent, but lower than some people who had more contentious races um, in the state. But Barbara and I still knocked doors and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I work at UVM Medical Center and I walk through my district every day to get to my house. So I feel like I, you know, cut turf every day just from the nature of my commute, but it was really fun to be able to stop along the path and like talk to my neighbors and hear their thoughts and concerns and their hopes for what um, I could accomplish in office. So I enjoyed campaigning, especially with Barbara. Nice. Yeah. Um, this is just sort of in closing, and this is for anyone, but um, have you been able to connect with folks either in your districts or across the state uh, especially youth, I'm curious, who are Iranian or Egyptian since you've taken office and what has that experience been like? So I'll share. Um, my mom and I years ago had a small food business. So we, uh, Iranian Persian food business that we did farmers markets and sold to um, uh, co-ops. So we met a lot of Iranians kind of came out because there was no other Persian food in Vermont uh, and hasn't been for a number of years. So that kind of brought out a lot of community members. There is a small con uh, group of um, 
former Norwich students that were here before the revolution, Iranians were sent here to the, that school. And I've met several of them throughout the years, just through um, uh, friends and family. And then I have a plan for next year, Nader, if you're willing to invite the uh, Iranian Student Union from UVM for Persian New Year and have them host the half seat table um, in the card room next year. This year, we didn't get to it early enough, but hopefully that will, you know, I've tried, I've attended a couple of their celebrations, which has been great. You know, there's a small group of Iranian students as, at UVM. So that's been really fun getting to know other Iranians. Yeah, uh, to that point. So I, I do have one Iranian constituent. Um, and But aside from that gentleman, I, the only other Iranians that I've met in Vermont were from UVM uh, back when I was serving as a rep. And they were at the state house uh, uh, for Iranian New Year. And and I didn't realize they were coming. And I was just like, oh, my God, there's more than a couple Iranians in Vermont. This is great. And so, you know, we connected and talked about, you know, precisely what you were talking about, you know, setting up a half scene table. Um, so I think that's a great idea for next year. Yeah. And I'll share a quick little sweet story. It's fresh on my brain. Um, I, I met someone who serves on staff who's from Palestine, and he has a daughter who's biracial like me. So her mom is a white American and her dad is from Palestine. And he brought her to a farmer's night and she saw me and she saw my hair in particular, because I have very curly hair. I know this isn't filmed, but you can look at my headshot and uh, my hair is all over the place and my curls everywhere. And she wanted to take a picture with me and her dad introduced her to me. And her dad shared with me that just seeing me meant so much to her because she lives in Vermont. So very similar to me growing up in Alabama. And so she doesn't see many people who look like her. And, um, so I've kept in touch with her with her family. I actually um, had dinner with them last night to celebrate Ramadan, and she's going to come to the state house next week and hang out with me and the Ed Committee all day long. And while I was at her house um, last night, you know, having dinner with her family, I was talking with her about her hair, and her mom was like, "Thank you so much because my hair is very different, and I don't know how to, you know, handle her curls." And so it was just like a really sweet a sweet moment. And for her to, you know, talk with me and say, really, you work at the state house. I know you were at the concert, but you serve there and I can go shadow you. And I'm like, yeah, and you can run one day too. So representation really matters. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for your incredible work. Um, each of you have a perfect 100 score here at BCB with our environmental policies. Uh, appreciate your advocacy and your time during this really busy kind of final quarter, I guess, of the session. Um, I have so much that I still want to hear from you and to learn from you. So I hope that you'd be back next season, next year, when we pick this back up in the, the second half of the biennium. Um, but thank you so much for being here. And hopefully you still are uh, able to sneak in a lunch before you get back to the floor. Yeah, I think, I think we got plenty of time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Now it's time for our climate stat of the week. Six. That is the average number of inches more of precipitation that we see in Vermont since the 1960s. As we have seemingly left the snowy part of our year behind us quite quickly, I thought it was apt to share, especially as the rivers and streams fill from snowmelt from the higher elevations. 
This is the time of year where heavy rains could easily cause flash flooding. The annual number of two-inch extreme precipitation events has been above the long-term average over the past 26 years, with the highest number of events occurring during the periods of 1995 to 1999 and 2005 to 2009. The driest multi-year periods were in the early 1910s and the early 1960s. The wettest periods were observed from 2005 to 2014. The driest consecutive five-year interval was 1961 to 1965, and the wettest was 2007 to 2011. This data was compiled and analyzed by the North Carolina Institute for Climate Studies in collaboration with NOAA. I want to thank our guests from the MENA caucus, Representative Mary Catherine Abdelghani Stone, uh, Senator Nader Hashim, and Gorang Garifano, as well as Representative Dara Torre, and of course, Lauren Hurl for assisting me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, YouTube and Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative environmental scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback? Email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. We'll be back next week as we begin winding down the season with our first of our final four episodes of season one of the Democracy Dispatch Podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.